to turn with me to the book of Revelation, chapter 2. As we look together at verses 12 through 17, whether you're joining us by virtue of social media or by your presence here, we welcome you. We realize that there are those that are unable to be with us for good reasons, and we, we're glad that you're able to tune in there. I know several folks are doing that. I also want to say this morning, I want to echo the excitement of the season with the decorations and the opportunity to consider the birth of Christ, His first coming, as well as His second coming uh, in this season. It's a wonderful opportunity that we have together. I want to talk to you this morning about faithful witnesses at Pergamum, Revelation 2, 12 to 17. Please stand out of reverence for the reading of God's holy word. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast to my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. May God bless the reading of his word and administer grace. And to the hearers, you may be seated. Can I get a witness? That's how the defense calls a witness, or so they say to the stand, or we say, can I get a witness in the culture? There will be a star witness in the trial. The scripture says, thou shalt not bear false witness. The word witness is often mentioned in the Bible. We're called to be witnesses for Christ. And so I ask you today, what kind of witness are you? Today we'll explore a description of a faithful witness and then also unfaithful witnesses. And we will see the most faithful witness in our text. As you consider what kind of witness you are today, I want you to have hope for tomorrow. You're not stuck based on the kind of witness you've been. There is no sin that you've committed that separates you from recovery in Christ. Christ stands ready to speak true words into your life to help you conquer sin. He stands not only ready to conquer your sin, but likewise to conquer your biggest enemy. This is a message of hope for you, the church. It's also a message of warning for those pretending to be the church. Today, today we will heed Christ's counsel to the church that's like Pergamum by understanding Christ's commendation of a faithful witness, correction of unfaithful witnesses, and coming of the most faithful witness. And that's the way that we'll take it on its parts. In verses 12 and 13, we'll see a commendation of a faithful witness. His name is Antipas. We'll see a correction of unfaithful witnesses, those that follow the false teachings of Balaam and the false teachings of the Nicolaitans. 
and the coming of the most faithful witness, which of course is referred to in Revelation 1.5 as Christ Himself, and He is coming again. So this teaching will help us persevere in joy and hope in the faith. Let's, let's get into it. Our first aspect this morning is we're looking at Christ's counsel to the church. The first aspect is commendation. It's kind of a, a theme that is common throughout these letters to the churches. You have commendations and corrections and comfort, as well as the church itself and Christ, an attribute of Christ, a self-designation of Christ. These are common, give or take an aspect, in all of the letters to the seven churches, the seven churches mentioned and taught to in Revelation 1 through 3. Let's look at verses 12 and 13 so that we can heed Christ's counsel to the church through the commendation of what it means to be a faithful witness. Look down at verse 12, and to the angel or a messenger of the church in Pergamum, write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Let's consider that word sword for just a moment. Oftentimes in Scripture, in Revelation particularly, there are counterexamples given. So a sword, if you think in your sanctified mind about your Bible, you might consider in the Bible how Revelation 13 says that the Lord gives governing authorities the right to wield the sword. 1 Peter 2 talks about it as well. well. What does it mean to wield the sword? It's the power to take life, isn't it? It's the power of capital punishment as you think about it. So in this example of a sword, you're talking about power, you're talking about stately power, the contrast is with statecraft or the ability to impact the empire. This church is stationed in Pergamum, which is the capital city of this part of the empire in Asia Minor at the time. It's modern-day Turkey. At the time, this would have been a city that was known for its close relationship with the imperial cult, with the, with the emperor worship, with pinching incense, with pledging allegiance to the Lord Caesar with emperor worship. They would have recognized the pantheon of gods. Perhaps even some say anti-pos. Pos may be all gods or the god of pan, pantheism. It may have been a kind of a, a catch-all name for those that were faithful witnesses that died as martyrs for the faith. They witnessed to the faith and died before the pantheon of gods. I'm not entirely sure if Antipas was a person, or if Antipas was a term that catches a, a group of people that faithfully witnessed. Most likely a person, probably a pastor in the early church at Pergamum who tasted death. John the Apostle, himself persecuted on the island prison at Patmos, would have looked at this as someone that had come before him during the reign of Emperor Domitian and died before him. Maybe John the Apostle wondered if he would taste death in martyrdom as he even wrote these words of apocalypse from Jesus to the churches and to the church for all time, us. But this particular word sword has meaning. When we read this word sword, it has example and counterexample. Sword obviously being the power of Rome, the power of Pergamum as they were connected with the stately power of the day to wield the sword. But what does Jesus say in his apt and benevolent statement of self-designation to the church? He says, I am him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now, there's a spiritual meaning to two-edged sword, to be true. If we consider in the Bible, 
where else we see two-edged sword with these spiritual meanings. Consider uh, the book of Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So the Word of God penetrates. It pierces deep into us. It it lays us open before God. And this is a good thing. The Word of God is sharp. It's a sword that penetrates deeply. And it is a discerning word that comes to us, understanding us, knows even the intentions of our heart, even our hidden thoughts. We can't hide from God. And surely in Revelation chapter 1, verses 14 to 16, when a sharp two-edged sword is mentioned, and then again in chapter 2, verse 16, in our focus text today, I'm sorry, in chapter 2, it's not verse 16, it's actually verse 12, and then it's also verse 16, when the two-edged sword is mentioned today, we understand that there's a reference to Christ the Word and to the words of Christ, the Word of the Lord. Consider Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17, and take the helmet of salvation, this is talking about how we do spiritual warfare, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. If we go back to the Old Testament, the prophet Isaiah chapter 49, verse 2, states, He made my mouth like a sharp sword, mouth and sword. In the shadow of His hand He hid me. He made me a polished arrow in His quiver. He hid me away. So going back to Revelation chapter 2, verse 12, we are going to see in verse 16 again that it's mentioned. But in, in chapter 2, verse 12 of Revelation, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Well, who has the sharp two-edged sword? It is the risen Lord Jesus Christ, the Son in glory. Now, notice what it says about the throne. Again, this, this counter imagery. We, we pray and talk about the throne of grace. This is Satan's throne. He says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Well, where is that? I think probably talking about Pergamum. I think this is where Satan's throne is. Is. The ESV Study Bible says this, Pergamum hosted, hosted temples dedicated to the divine Augustus and the goddess Roma and to a certain god of healing and had a large altar dedicated to Zeus. In fact, one pastor was describing and commentating on this verse and was describing the over 100 foot by 100 foot statue or idol to Zeus, to that Greek god Zeus, and describing the worship of Zeus and described how in the intricately built statue, there were little designs of serpents. Well, that, that certainly brings, the serpent brings to mind Satan, right? So perhaps Satan's throne is referencing directly worship of Zeus. More broadly, it would have been the worship of the pantheon. It would have been the worship of any body but the risen Lord Jesus Christ. It would have been the worship of any deity, the pledging of effect to deity other than the Lord Jesus Christ Himself, this would have been pagan worship. He says, you're dwelling in the place where pagan worship is famous. You're dwelling in the place of Satan's throne, the throne to Zeus. And the worship of the emperor as a god was strongly emphasized there. In fact, Pergamum was the only city in the area that was given the right to wield the sword by the Roman Empire. All the other cities, as you may recall from reading the Bible, had to send their criminals off to Rome to be executed. They couldn't kill them, not Pergamum. They were actually able to kill their criminals. 
So this is truly a throne, a power seat. Pergamum had the ability not just to imprison Christians that wouldn't bow the knee to Caesar and confess him as Lord because they recognized Jesus as the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings, but not only imprison them, they actually had the ability to move past just making you think about it in a dingy prison. They could kill you. And perhaps that's exactly the fate that is being described here with Antipas. Perhaps he was killed at Pergamum, here where Satan's throne is. Now, let us look at verse 13, chapter, Revelation chapter 2, verse 13. It says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith. You hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith. My name, of course, the name of Jesus. They didn't deny the name of Christ in order to get by in the world. That was great danger to not going along to getting along. There was great consequence to it. There is today as well, in a different way, but there is in our culture too. Perhaps we'll get that to that in a moment, but I want to speak of the commendation right now of a faithful witness, Antipas. And so it says here that he did not deny the name. He held fast to the name, regardless of what it cost. And it says here, he did not deny the faith, verse 13, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you, where Satan dwells, where Satan's throne is, the, perhaps the, the idol to Zeus, where the, where the pagan worship and the festivals therein and the idol worship was popular. And in fact, it was the price of admission to the economy, we think. Now, catch for a second the phrase, the moniker, my faithful witness. I think you probably know what faithful means. It means to be true to God, to be true to that which you're setting out to be true to. Uh, what is witness? Well, incidentally, the Greek word here translated witness is martus. It gets transliterated almost straightforwardly into English as martyr. Perhaps you're familiar with the word martyr. Martyr is used to describe someone who loses their life for the faith. That's the context of the word witness here. The same word is used to describe Stephen, the first martyr recorded in Scripture in Acts chapter 7. After the resurrection of Christ, we have Stephen stoned to death. It's described in great detail. And in fact, it was a seminal event in the Lord's means to eventually convert Saul into Paul, who had become the Apostle Paul, and write a lot of the letters to these churches in the New Testament that you read, such as Galatia and Ephesus, Colossae, these letters to these churches that become books in the New Testament. To put it simply, martyrdom was a big part of how the early church spread. I think one of the early church fathers said it this way. He said that the, the blood of the martyr, martyrs is the seed of the saints. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the saints. A modern pastor said that the Acts of the Apostles is formula for church growth, at least spiritually, if not numerically too, was Holy Spirit power, they were filled with the Holy Spirit, so they had spiritual power. It was preaching, true preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then the third one was persecution. They were persecution. In fact, persecution spreads the gospel. We teach our little ones. That's, that's what spreads the gospel is persecution. And so this is a, a faithful witness testifying in the lineage of the faithful witness, Revelation 1.5, who's Christ himself, and what it means to be a faithful witness is not to be an expert in statecraft. It's not to topple the authorities of the day. 
certainly to be faithful to them, certainly to preach the gospel to them, but there's a limit to our, if you want to use a common phrase, hedging of our bets with the governing authorities. They wield the sword. They're allowed to do that in this season. And in a Galatians 1, 3 to 5 sense, this domain right now has a whole lot of Satan wreaking havoc. And so us, like Antipas and like the faithful witnesses early on, have a certain limitation to how much we can justify and square and keep up with worldly affairs without violating our witness to Jesus Christ. That's why there were so many martyrs, especially in the early church in the time of the Reformation. In certain parts of the world, we have a third wave of, of vociferous martyrdom today. And we ought to pray for them and care for them, as we've said in previous sermons. We ought to have a sense of heart for those that are martyred for the faith, like Antipas was, who was killed. And so our first listening and heeding Christ's counsel of the church that's like Pergamon today is to understand what they're commended for, faithful witnessing, even if it costs them. Antipas was willing to die for his faith, and we ought be willing at least to be marginalized and sometimes minimized and to face hardship for our faith, for the true witness or witness to the faith, where we get the word martyr. Now, that's the commendation. What I want to talk to you about next is the correction, the correction that comes to unfaithful witnesses. Now, before we dig deeply into what it means to be an unfaithful witness, let me just say that it, it seems that there's a slide from faithfulness. It's not always a matter-of-fact thing, especially with regard to the way that Satan works on the church at Pergamum. Uh, one pastor sees, uh, sees some symmetry and progression between the church that we preach about today and then the next two. We go from accepting the teaching at Pergamum, and then the next church at Thyatira seems to have actually begun to practice the false teaching with regard to idolatry and immorality. And then finally, when we get to the church that's mentioned at the top of chapter 3, we get to a church that's pronounced dead for all intents and purposes. The command is to strengthen what's left over and remains with faithfulness. You, you can't dabble with the works of the flesh. You can't allow yourself to just drift from such a wonderful salvation, the way that Hebrews talks about it. We are to persevere in the faith, which requires persevering. We stay with what we started with. We stay with Christ and His throne and His name, regardless of what that costs us. And from time to time, we stumble, and we need to be reminded of what faithfulness looks like, what it means to be a witness. And from time to time, we falter and we fall, and we need the discipline of the church, the loving affection of the church to draw us back to our vow before Christ and our commitment to be a faithful witness to Him. So there is an, a, a correction here for unfaithful witnessing, for unfaithful witnesses. In fact, the Lord Jesus says, to begin verse 14, He says, I have things against you. Well, that ought to cause us to pause, right? I mean, when Jesus says, I have something against you, that's important, isn't it? I want to know what that is. I, I certainly don't want to do the thing that they did that caused them to have something against them. Well, that's the right posture toward reading these letters and reading this letter to the church at Pergamum. If you're to be a faithful witness, if we're to be presented as maturing Christ on the day of the Lord, this is something we need to take heed of. 
What is it that the Lord Jesus has against a church where there was a good group of people within them that were willing to follow Antipas in death if it meant not denying the faith? Well, when Satan can't get you one way, he comes at you from the backside from another. And so it's not now overt denial of Christ. It's basic assimilation into the pagan culture. That seems to be what's at play. And the Lord is correcting those that are allowing questionable teaching, heterodoxy, not good teaching, not solid teach, teaching that has holes in it, if sometimes even outright denials of biblical ethics that's to creep in. And he's correcting them. He's, he's, frankly, he's, he's telling them to repent. We're going to see shortly. Let, let's take it on its parts, though, as we look at this second point, the correction of unfaithful witnesses. Look at verse 14. I already said, but I have a few things against you, Jesus said. And, and here is the first part of the correction is about an Old Testament teaching from Balaam, and the second part of the correction is about a New Testament time teaching from the Nicolaitans. And they probably run together, as we'll see, but there probably are some distinctions between the two as well. But let, let, let's look at it carefully together. We're going to look now at the few things the Lord has against those that would hold to the teaching of Balaam, which some had, not all, and those that would hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans, which some had, not all. So what, what, is, what are we talking about when we talk about Balaam's teaching? What's being corrected here with regard to Balaam's teaching? Well, Balaam is talked about in Numbers chapter 22 through 23, 24, 25, and then again in 31, and what's going on in, in Numbers is Balaam is an effective voice, a, a preacher, a prophet in the people of God in Israel. And he's known for his prophecies. And so he is hired by a pagan king, the king of Moab. He's hired by King Balak to prophesy against Israel. Now at this time, you remember their desert wanderings and they're, they're to come into the promised land, they're to take the land. You remember they, they trip and fall so many times over. Um, this is the time that they trip and fall and, and certainly they have hard times because of it. What Balaam does for greed, for profit, is he attempts to utter a curse against the sons of Israel. But he can't do it. He tries three times, he can't do it. And so they concoct this plan where he says, if you'll just send, and look at the subtlety of Satan's plan when he can't hit it right on. He can't get him to outright deny. If you'll just send the daughters of Moab over and entice them with sexual immorality, they'll idol worship as well, and they'll apostatize. In fact, that's exactly what happened. King Moab did do that, used the daughters of his kingdom in a sinister and ugly way to represent what we might call Satan's throne and sent, according to Balaam's greedy suggestion, sends the daughters of Moab over to unite with the, the sons of Israel. And, in fact, they should have never done that. They should have known better than to unite in relations, if not marriage, with those that were worshipped with paganism. But, in fact, they did not act faithfully. They were unfaithful witnesses. And Balaam, the, the, the Bible talks uh, Joshua, Micah, in the classic Micah 6-8 passage, Balaam is mentioned in an unsavory way. Balaam becomes uh, known and remembered 
for his greedy unfaithfulness. If you look at the New Testament, this is how they describe him. If you look at 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 14 through 16, it says, They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing. Surely Balaam thought he'd never get found out, right? He'd have a little of this and still have all that. That's what he thought he could manage. it. That's what we always think. But sin takes us farther than we want to go. It keeps us so long. Look at what it says here in 2 Peter 2.16. But was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. Look at how Jude similarly thinks of the moral behind the story of Balaam in light of those who claim to be God's mouthpieces in his day but are actually pursuing unnatural desire and sexual immorality and outright rejecting authority, namely divine authority and the divine throne. Jude notes in verses 9 through 13, just one chapter there, Jude 9 through 13, but when the archangel Michael contending with the devil was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme but, but these people blaspheme all that they do not understand. They are destroyed and, and are destroyed by all that they are, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain. We all know who Cain is from Genesis, right? And they abandoned themselves for the sake of gain, right here alongside Cain, to gain Balaam's error. And so in Parish and Korah's rebellion. So again, Balaam's error, it lives in infamy. These are hidden reefs at your love feast, reefs at your love feast, as they feast, as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves. Well, that's a tough one, isn't it? Shepherds feeding themselves. Waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead uprooted, wild waves at the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. So these hold the teaching like Balaam, where for greed they engage in things that they ought not engage in, or at least Balaam did, but also Balaam's error extends to the sons of Israel who accepted, who fell victim to the stumbling block by engaging in sexual immorality and idolatry, which often run together. In fact, they ran together at Pergamum. Often you would engage in the kind of party and festival environment with the worship of the pagan gods, it would divulge into orgastic behavior amongst the participants. It was not a good thing. It's not something that Christians could be involved in without becoming complicit in it. But I think that might have been what was going on here, is they were sliding into, ever so slowly and subtly, into the, the, the trap of Satan to be able to engage in these things without denying their faith. you know. Well, really, Jesus is the one that has resurrected, and these gods aren't real. So whatever I say about these gods doesn't matter because Jesus is the only one that's really real. It's kind of a, a mental gymnastics, a kind of justification they go through, a, a, a kind of way of interpreting the Bible that, that causes you to have to bend every which way to try to come up with how you're going to justify being an unfaithful witness. But Jesus just calls them out for this and where they have begun ever so slowly to give in to the wiles of the evil one, where they've begun to compromise culturally. And what is called here 
in reference to the sons of Israel, succumbing to a stumbling block. Do you see that in verse 14? Revelation 2.14 says, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. That word stumbling block is other places in the New Testament trans- translated uh, an offense. It's scandalon. You may recognize the root word for scandal there. Scandalon, to put a scandal before the sons of Israel. So they would act scandalously that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. One lexicon says that in the New Testament, scandalon is used figuratively in a moral sense. It's concerned mainly with the fact that it produces certain behavior which can lead to ruin. And this word is used a number of times in the New Testament that way. Incidentally, though, the word scandal is used in association differently with the causing of stumbling by those that reject Christ. Sometimes Christ's work on our behalf is referred to in the New Testament as a scandal, as a stumbling block, you might remember, to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. It's a scandal on. So scandal can have moral impurity connotations like it does here, but it can also be, in a counterexample, the scandal of Christ. Will we receive what's scandalous to the world, the, the free offer of salvation from Christ, and live and stay with that gospel? It's freely given to us. We we can't do anything to earn our salvation. It's a free gift so that we can never boast about our salvation except for in Christ who's done it all for us. But will at any point we begin to outsmart ourselves and justify actions that violate our conscience and drub our conscience to the point, the edge of its blunted? Friends, your conscience has been crucified by the blood of Jesus Christ. And the scandal of the cross is the only scandal that you need to get caught up in. Let us not get caught up in the scandal like the sons of Israel. For we shake hands with the culture in an effort to go along to get along. We might not be tempted to go to the pagan temple and eat that way, but what are we tempted with today? What in our time, in our Pergamum, in our city, in our places, what are we tempted with to ever so slightly begin to accept the teaching of the way of Balaam, the way that Balaam led Balak to make us stumble. What are the moral scandals of our day? Stay with Christ. Stay with the sword of the Lord. Don't put your faith in the governing authorities that wield the sword. Put your faith in the sword of the Lord and keep it squarely there. Don't put your, don't put your scandal shoes on like the sons of Israel. Accept the scandal of Christ and let that be how you live. Shrewdness is never enough to square with the unbelieving culture. One day it catches all of us. And so we go along in the world, but we all have a day of Antipas, a day in which we're called to witness to Christ above getting along with the governing authorities and going along with the culture. When does that day come? In fact, this teaching of Balaam is described as greedy on Balaam's part, but it's a stumbling block, as I've already mentioned, for the part of the sons of Israel. They eat idle food, and practice sexual immorality, which is pornuo. It's, we, we, we get a lot of our words in the family of pornography from this, this Greek family of words, sexual immorality as it's translated here. We get some time with that next week whenever we look at the Jezebel and the teaching of Jezebel when we look at the church at Thyatira. They're actually further along, it seems, on their giving way to these false teachers than the church here at Pergamum. Nevertheless, it starts somewhere. 
And the sooner that we repent for what we've allowed such teaching, the better. Now, sometimes we think that it is an unloving thing to correct people when their teaching, if not their practice, has gotten off track with the gospel. But in fact, that's a lie from Satan. That's a lie from the pit of hell. It's actually unloving to not speak the words of Christ to folks that need corrected, myself included. This is a a, a big cooperative effort to stay with the gospel. And based on the clear teaching of the Word of God, we need one another in order to stay with the gospel. By one pastor's count, better than 12 times in the New Testament, in fact, 12 times church discipline is mentioned, and then Revelation 2 and 3 sort of alludes to it all over the place. We must discipline one another in the faith. And I'm not always talking about formally either. I'm talking about informally. Correction. This is what the Word of God says on balance. We don't act that way. That's not our manner of life. We don't walk in the way of Balaam. And also, we don't walk in the way of the New Testament cult of the Nicolaitans. What was that? Let's consider that for just a moment. Again, to refresh, Revelation chapter 2 Verse 15 says, So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. This is allowed in the church. Well, what is the teaching of the Nicolaitans? Well, the word Nicolaitan is a compound word between Nike and Laos. Nike meaning conqueror and Laos meaning people. So conqueror of the people is what the word means quite literally, conqueror of the people. So one pastor uh, preached on this. I thought it was interesting the way that he went about it. He said that it, it was folks that were trying to conquer the people and gain a following by marginalizing some of the Bible's teaching on sexual immorality and idolatry. Possible, even plausible, I think, when we look at this and consider Balaam overlaid with this New Testament sect, this, this cult of the Nicolaitans that were pulling to the teaching, pulling people away. In fact, the reason I can call it a cult, quite simply, is in Revelation chapter 2, verse 6, the church at Ephesus is commended for the fact they don't tolerate the teaching of the Nicolaitans at all. Jesus says, you hate what they do, same as I do. Revelation chapter 2, verse 6 says that. If you want to look back up in your Bible at that verse, uh, they're commended for that which they hate, which seems kind of odd. Um, but we, we talked about that two weeks ago when we, when we looked at the Nicolaitans in Revelation 2.6. But they appear again here. And I think the, best, the most straightforward way to understand it is that the Nicolaitans lived lives of unrestrained indulgence. Clement of Alexandria, early church father, said they abandoned themselves to pleasure like goats, leading to a life of self-indulgence. So they're authoritarian, they're heavy-handed in their teaching, but they emphasize worldliness This is the error of the Nicolaitans. And the the church seems to have a mishmash of greedy Balaamites and the sons of Israel capitulating and the Nicolaitans swooping up folks. Can you imagine the kind of confusion in the church, the kind of pain that's caused with this kind of confusion? Isn't it a comfort to us to realize that we're not the only century, the only church, the only geography that's ever struggled with hard times? Isn't it nice? I mean, we have these letters. We have hard times, too. We have things that we struggle with, too, but we're not alone in that. And Christ 
doesn't leave us without understanding, without His sword, without His word. His sword is going to conquer our sins. This word continues. It's, it's this contrition project. He's, he's purifying us for that day of that, that great wedding feast of the Lamb, where we as His bride will be presented. It's wonderful, but correction is it's, it's part of the process. We're being corrected by the Word. We, we don't revile the authority from the Word of God. We embrace it. We, we're hungry for it with humility. Say, Lord, teach me. What's, what do I need to hear today from this text that corrects me? That's the attitude that we bring, bring to this, this service. Joel Beakey said, where have, where have you over the last three or four years sort of slid and become lax in your ethics? And how can this text speak to you afresh today to get back to a place where you're actively seeking to stay with good doctrine and good practice? Because the teaching will eventually impact the practice as we see with these churches in sequence. What he calls them to ahead of his coming is to repent. Now, look at this verse, verse 16. We have seen the commendation of a faithful witness. We've seen the correction of unfaithful witnesses. And now we are going to see the coming of the most faithful witness. But just ahead of it is just two words in verse 16. Therefore, repent. Repent. It, it's, it's a simple word. It's, it's a single Greek word. You repent. You all repent. If not, I'm going to, I'm going to do something. But it's a hard word, isn't it? To live a life of repentance. Some would contest that we don't repent after we're saved. Well, that's just patently not biblical. We live lives marked by repentance. One said repentance is a journey of death. It's part of our humility before the Lord. It's part of the fact we recognize that we haven't achieved perfection yet. We're walking with the Lord toward the day of glorified bodies. Now, we don't repent in order to, in order to earn our salvation. That's true enough. I mean, if, if you sin today and you don't get to your knees tonight to repent, confess your sin before the Lord and to repent of that sin before you go to bed, you're not going to hell because you didn't have time to pray a prayer of repentance. That, that's, that's not biblical and that you shouldn't be constrained with such nonsense. But it is true to say that we as Christians embrace repentance. We sort of put our arms around it because we, we embrace the correction that comes from Jesus. Perfectly, no, but willingly, yes, as we've said so many times in this short series so far. So as we heed Christ's counsel to the church like Pergamum, we understand the correction that comes to unfaithful witnesses as much as the commendation that comes for faithful witness, that we might proceed in our faithfulness of witness. And really, we look to, with hope, to Christ, who is singularly the faithful witness, the most faithful witness. Look at Revelation chapter 2, verse 16. It says, if not, I will come, if you don't repent soon, and war or fight against them with the sword of my mouth. We've already talked about what that means, but it's, it, the Lord is he's coming. It's, it's not just simply going to be a, a wink, wink, and a nod, nod. He's coming militant. He's coming to judge the quick and the dead. No one escapes the sword of the Lord. And we see this, this here in verse 17 then. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The Lord is talking to the churches. 
Look in Revelation chapter 1, verse 2. The servant John bore witness to the word of the Lord. Do you see that? His job is to witness to the word of the Lord. If you look at your print Bible in Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth, the faithful witness, definite article, the. Not a faithful witness, but the faithful witness. So we turn our attention now not to our own abilities, but to the ability in the conquest of Christ. What He has done for us, despite all of our weak needness, as He has secured our salvation by His shed blood on the cross. That's what gives us the strength to bring a humble attitude toward correction. That's what gives us the foresight to see that He's going to make us like Antipas in the end. Faithful witnesses, more faithful than Antipas. A faithful witness in the end because we're going to have the whitening of Christ on us in our glorified bodies in His presence. Our salvation is not secured based on something that we have purchased, but on something that He has done. We need only recognize it and receive it. And I think that's exactly what's going on here when He gives this warning, this strong warning to anyone that's among the church, but it's not actually the church. But also this great assurance to all of us believers, all of us conquerors, and that's what it means, surely, all of us Nikkeis, not Nikkeilations, not people conquerors, but sin conquerors in obedience to Christ. We are the ones that Nike our way out of this thing. We conquer our sin because Christ gives us what we need moment by moment to live in obedient faithfulness to Him, that we might be taught everything that He commands, like the Great Commission says. So what do we make of this seemingly mysterious ending to this text? Let's see if we can make it a little less mysterious. It says, To the one who conquers, I will give what? It says, He'll give hidden manna. It says, He'll give a white stone with a new name on it that no one knows except for the one who receives it. Well, there is enough ink spilt about in this to fill libraries. I mean, there's so much that's been written about the white stone, about the new name, particularly about the hidden manna. Uh, let me see if I can make just a short statement about these things so that we can keep it in the context of a sermon and not turn it into a commentary. First, the hidden manna, the crypto manna, the manna that is hidden. Could, of course, talk about the Lord's Supper. Could talk about the manna in the tabernacle and entrance into the Holy of Holies and fellowship. All those things would be in bounds. Most likely, in the time of Balaam's error, you had the children of God out in the desert, and what had they been, what had they been fed by? Manna from heaven. Now, he's going to give you hidden manna, manna that you can't see. He's going he's to feed you. He's going to make provision for you in ways that you can't see. I think that gets added. We have these deep needs, I think, and this last verse provides an anecdote for those needs with a counterexample from what Balaam and the Nicolaitans had provided. First is this provision, this hidden manna for the people of God. He's going to feed you. He's going to take care of you. Like a nursing mother, He's going to provide for you. You need only trust Him. He says, I'll give you a white stone. Well, what's with this stone with a new name and whatnot here in verse 17? Well, a white stone would have symbolized acquittal, like a white stone and a black stone in this ancient culture. So to receive a white stone would be acquitted in a trial. You'd be acquitted of whatever the charge was against you. And so this wouldn't be so much um, provision as it would be protection. This is the strength of the Lord. It's the throne of the Lord. It's the sword of the Lord. 
Here He comes. He doesn't just provide for us with provision. He protects us too. The deepest needs that we have. We don't have to turn to greed and we don't have to turn to sexual immorality to have our, our provision, our protection met. He says, I'm going to take care of you. Trust me. Headers and footers, this short message to the church at Pergamum with a tender statement of support for what their biggest need is. I give you hidden manna, I give you a white stone, an acquittal. You won't have your sins held against you. A white stone also could have been used for admittance for gladiators after they ended their career. They were able to make it into the parties, and they were, they were on the A-list. They were, they were able to get in on the fast track. This white stone would have been a way of, of helping. It would be like an admission ticket to get into a place you really wanted to get to. Well, assuredly, this has to have some connotation for the white stone, the admittance that we have into the kingdom of God, right? I mean, He not only gives us provision, He gives us protection. We're protected as we're hidden with Christ in God. He's made for us a way where there was no way. And what is with this no one knows except the name except for the one who receives it? Well, certainly we, we receive Christ, don't we? And so there is a, an aspect of hiddenness until the Lord opens our eyes. We must be regenerated. The salvation is a work of Christ from first to last. We don't, we don't save ourselves. If you're an unbeliever this morning, you need to understand. You can't understand the hidden things of God until He opens your eyes. Your prayer this morning is that He would open your eyes. He would open the eyes of your heart. The definition of repentance is a change of a way of thinking. You won't change your way of thinking until spiritual things are enlivened inside of you. You need the Spirit. Pray to receive the Spirit this morning. He freely gives. The message for those of you that have received the Spirit, the church, the true church, be strengthened by this. You don't need to find new ways to get along in the world. Just stay with Christ. You don't need to give yourself to statecraft. Just stay with Christ. You don't have to bow the knee to the Caesars of our day. Just stay with Christ. He has provision for you, and He has protection for you to get into the kingdom. Perhaps... Speaking of hidden man in a white stone and a new name, perhaps letting Scripture interpret Scripture might be our best course of action here. Turn in your Bibles to Revelation 19, verses 11 through 16 for the conclusion of this message. Here's what it says in this very same book. Speaking of our coming King, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one setting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. The armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron." He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Beloved, let me tell you this morning, you do not have to seek intimacy through greedy means. The Lord is enough for you. You do not need sexual immorality and an idolatrous culture. The Lord is enough for you. What else is the coming Lamb if it is not our great Husband and we a bride adorned for Him purely and whitely? What a wonderful feast it will be. What a wonderful provision. What a wonderful protection from a true and better Husband. You don't need to look outside of this sword from the Lord 
to find your needs met. He's always enough. Amen. Let's together sing now a song of praise with our worship team. And if you wouldn't mind standing for that, we'll do it together. There she is. 